Welcome to the Synaxis Podcast. A Synaxis is a liturgical gathering. It can also refer to an unveiling event. The Synaxis Podcast is a weekly gathering hosted by yours truly, Scott Jones, for the purpose of finding the life-giving healing word of the gospel and the words of the weekly lectionary passages. Join myself and a guest each week as we explore the lectionary text together. This is the place for gospel-rich, grace-saturated, and a properly worldly lens on the week's lectionary passages, all in 25 minutes or less. My guest is Greg Strawbridge. He is the pastor of All Saints Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. He's authored and edited a number of books, including The Case for Covenant Communion and The Case for Covenantal Infant Baptism. He also runs WordMP3.com. Greg, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. Before we get into the text, and we should get into quickly, I just want to give you a moment for righteous self-promotion. Man, you've launched a new podcast project called Eucharistics. Not that there's not other things like Word MP3 and your church or many things you could self-promote, but this is a, a unique animal out there on the podcast landscape that I'm enjoying. And I, I, we even know there's one Orthodox Jewish listener to this podcast in West Virginia, yeah. of all places. So, I, you know, that, Wait, I mean, could there you, are... Uh, there are Orthodox Jewish people in West Virginia. Yeah, and you don't ha- and you don't have to go to synagogue very often because you can't walk many to many synagogues where they live. So it's the ultimate legitimate not go to church strategy. Who turn who turns the lights on for them? That's what I want to know. Exactly. It's a very challenging. Well, there's a lot of Shabbat goyim in West Virginia, but uh, yeah, right, exactly. So say a minute something for a minute about Eucharistics before we get into it because I think it's uh, everybody that listens to this podcast would be into it. I think. Yeah, Eucharistics.com. A few episodes out there, got a couple more we're working on, but it's basically the combination of thanksgiving, gratitude, and a look at the Bible, essentially uh, looking up from our own lives to being grateful for who we are. This was exemplified uh, not on my doing at prayer on Sunday. We have a couple of folks pray, and one of the guys that prayed said, Lord, we thank you for this land. We have a kind of section where we pray for the country, pray for leaders. And his prayer was, we pray for and give thanks to you for the food we have, for the animals we can eat, for the great you know bounty that we have in this land. And it was a very simple prayer, really, but it was a gratitude prayer. This and- is like the novelist Barbara Kingsolver, right, that ate just what they could get locally from the land for like a year and they're like you just eat so much more gratefully like when you realize like strawberries don't grow in the frozen food aisle yeah so so if you listen to the third episode of eucharistics it's a french chef who grew up in lyon france and he became a church planter like aaron like Irenaeus of lyon yes and he grew up there and he was studied under a, a michelin chef um chef basically Great guy, um, but also became a PCA church planter. And he said, and I said, well, what would you serve for a meal? Because he's done a lot of church planting through just opening his home and having a meal and spending time with people. And and then he said, well, now that brings another problem because we always work with the seasons. We never just, you know, serve food, period. It's always food according to the seasons. And, you know— I don't think Americans think that way very much because we walk in the supermarket and we can get everything pretty much anytime we want it. And it's there is something about the rotation And, and of we nature. get the best of everything anytime <laughs> we want it. And we're going to get even more of it because... 
Canada is robbing us. We'll get even more. <laughs> That's right. We we want to make America great again. Well, so it, that we I actually have bad tomatoes in the ref, in the I, refrigerator from our grocery store. I don't know that Trump is going to that make are out of season. America great again, but I think that in your own small way, you might help make America thankful again, which would be a beautiful, beautiful thing. Well, that's, you, yeah, that's the goal. It's just to highlight that. Highlight gratitude, thankfulness. It's good for your health, and it's good for food, and it's good for thinking. Let's move into our text, Greg. First Samuel fifteen thirty four through sixteen thirteen. I feel like this is like preaching for pastors. I mean, everybody's a pastor. Everybody's a congregant. Everybody, you know, is a, is a, is a discipler, a disciple at some point in the Christian walk, right? These things are fluid. But this is like Samuel's at a, at a, at a tough spot because he's grieving Saul, who, you know, like, it, it's interesting because the monarchy is an ambiguous thing, right? That God is using redemptively in Israel's history, but it's ambiguous. And Samuel's caught in the ambiguity. And, and the Lord is like, dude, what are you grieving over? It's over. Yeah. Yeah, actually, I think there's, um, you know, I think we all know the story that, you know, Saul uh, failed and Samuel was given the task to go and want a new king, which was David. And we know the rise of David and the Davidic dynasty. dynasty. Um, I think the thing that uh, stands out to me in terms of preaching, I preached through this a couple of years ago, is that there's a preaching point on the sadness of Samuel. Samuel grieved that Saul did not remain faithful. And so nobody wants to see, you know, what you did in establishing this monarchy, even though, again, it's ambiguous, as you said. Nobody wants to see it go up in flames. So you start something, you start a school, you start a uh, an event, you start a but Does podcast. that say that in the text? Like, it just says he grieved over Saul. Yeah, no, no, it said, well, I mean, I'm taking it as... He he was you know he was very sad. Um, yeah, but I think sometimes how long you know God says how long will you grieve over Saul? Yeah, but I think Since, that it's interesting though because it doesn't say that he grieved that he was unfaithful, and it, which is interesting because sometimes in the over politicized culture that we live in, right? Like it, sometimes it's not even over the faithfulness or faithlessness. It's that was my guy. Like you know, I mean, it's interesting. It's just he grieved over Saul. It doesn't. I mean, maybe it is. I mean. I'm sure Samuel is more righteous than I or you, but like, it's interesting because like it was this guy, you know, like, and, and I don't know how much of Samuel's identity is bound up with Saul's rise and fall. Like, it's like any like pastoral person, how much of my identity was bound up with, I picked the elder that screwed up or I picked the associate that tried to run me out or I said this program was the thing to ignite our evangelism and it didn't do anything. It's, you know, like, I wonder how much like, it's just over attachment to things that become idols because they do our identity work. Well, right. And and that's what I mean, basically. But I think it's clear that Saul did become unfaithful. There's some text to say that. And so I would just summarize and say Samuel was grieved that Saul did not remain faithful. He was grieved over Saul. And God rebukes him and says, hey, you've got a new mission. So I think there's a preaching point there. Okay, sure, you did something. You you tried to do it well. I think Samuel, you know, is a righteous guy, but it didn't work out. And what do you do at that point? And it's and, not and, obvious to everybody it's not working out, right? That's the interesting thing too. It's not obvious. His poll numbers aren't tanking, right? Like I mean they're not there are some ambiguities, but it's not like all of Israel is like he's the worst. Like it, it's interesting because it's it, it's clear that he's straight off the path, but that's not always obvious either. Yeah. That's right. 
Um, but I think the point of application for me would be, you know, new creation point, um, new beginnings, God's mercies are new every morning. Uh, yeah, sure. You tried to do something well. It didn't work out. Not necessarily your fault. It wasn't Samuel's fault in this case. Do the next thing that God calls you to. And that's what God basically says. Stop grieving over Saul. I've got a mission for you. Go do it. And I think there's some consolation for us in a world of fallenness and sinfulness and trials and tribulations and affliction. There's some consolation when we just say, okay, I'm going to do the next thing that I'm supposed to do. And that's what that's what God calls Samuel to do. But there's a very interesting ethical dilemma in the passage, too. You know what I'm referring to? It's, you know, when Samuel said, how can I go when Saul hears of it, verse 2 of chapter 16, he will kill me. And then the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. And so that's 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 his guise to get there. So the ethical dilemma is, of course, God tells Samuel to tell a something like a partial truth or a half truth to the situation to to those who hear it, so that he doesn't get killed by by Saul. Now, first of all, that indicates Saul was a madman, which we know from other texts. So Saul was pretty far gone. But also, what do you do with, you know, lying? What do you do with not telling the whole truth, nothing but the truth? Fake news. <laughs> you say it's fake. Now, yeah, no, I think it is. It's it's the whole shrewdest serpents initiative is doves. And it's also heart condition stuff too, right? Because then it moves into him looking for David. And it's interesting because Samuel starts serving a guy, Eli, who can't see. And Samuel can hear the Lord, right? And, mm-hmm. and Eli actually can... He can't hear the Lord, but he knows when someone has heard the Lord. And it, so Samuel's heard, and now he sees. It's like it's it's like it's all new creation in the sense of sight, like because the Lord looks on the heart. And, and Jesse says, "Well, of course it can't be. I got one kid left, but it's the run of the litter, and 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 the run of the litter is yeah. is right the Lord's anointed. And so it's it's yeah. a, it's almost like Samuel is another sort of new Adam story. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there's a lot of angles on this, but one thing on the ethical dilemma, I would just say. You know, there are a couple of examples of this in the Old Testament. Um, first of all, the Rahab example, the mid well, first the midwives saving the Israelite boys in Exodus one fifteen. Uh, Rahab's actions to hide the spies by faith, according to Hebrews eleven thirty one, uh, James two twenty five. Also, Elisha deceiving the Arameans, Second Kings six nineteen, and the prophet Micaiah who misleads uh, Ahab. In second, in first Kings 22, 15. So there's a number of kind of ninth commandment skirting type things. And my, my point of view on that would be you save life. If you have to deceive a person to save life, you have to do that. And that seems to be those examples. You know, there's, there's the saving of life in most of those cases. And so there's, there's some kind of priority of, of ethics there. I'm not a relativist, but. I think that biblically speaking, we have to interpret the ninth commandment according to the whole Bible, and those are some of the verses. And this passage is no is no example. I don't think, by the way, you should, you know, be a false witness. You should perjure yourself. You should, you know, lie to the IRS or evade taxes or lie on your FAFSA application or anything like that. I don't. I don't think you have any justification for that. But if the Nazis are at the door and the Jews are in the basement. 
you can deceive the Nazis if you possibly can. What, what if it's like, it's like, remember that Seinfeld episode where Jerry's like, George, teach me to lie like you. Jerry, that's like t- asking Pavarotti, teach me to sing like you. But then he says, Jerry, remember, it's not a lie if you believe it. So the, the takeaway could be, it's not a lie if it's told in faith. <laughs> Let's go on to Second Corinthians yeah, five, yes. six through ten. The bracket, the, you know, optionals eleven through thirteen, fourteen through seventeen. But it's another interesting pastoral, like it, like kind of for people that have been in places where they've had the the gift and uh, you know an opportunity to sort of build people up in the faith, and then people s- suddenly say, "Wow, you're not all you were cracked up to be." And we found uh, better leaders, better the super apostles. We found people that are, you know, it seemed like they've got a better rap and a better understanding and a better image. And Paul is defending his own apostleship, and he's talking about, you know, this whole sense of he says we're home at the body in the body, we're away from, we're away from the Lord, we walk by faith, not by sight. He talks about this confidence, you know, he has in the Lord. Uh, which is allowing him to kind of undergo trials, tribulations, and even the seeming, I would say, akin to betrayal by this Corinthian church. And it's great. He says what keeps him going is the love of Christ. It urges us on because we're convicted that one has died for all, therefore all have died. Yeah. Well, that, I mean, a couple of things about Second Corinthians. First of all, the first section two, of it— Two Corinthians— Two Corinthians, yes, sorry. Two Corinthians, we shall forever call it two Corinthians. It uh, gives us liberty. (laughs) There is liberty, two Corinthians. So two Corinthians is kind of divided into three main sections, according to most commentators. The first one is the defense of his apostolic ministry from about one to seven, and then eight to nine is all about the gift that they're, they're taking to Jerusalem, and then the rest of the book is about, again, a vindication of his ministry. So it's very amazing to me that in Second Corinthians, you have the, some of the most memorable verses in the Bible. When I was in college, I went to the Navigator Ministry, and I learned the topical memory system, which is 70, I'm sorry, 60 verses in five sets of, you know, a bunch of topics. You have easily the, top five ecumenical spiritual biographies of anybody I know. You and Bill Bohr. You and Bill Bohr. But it was great for me. It was really helpful to me. And the first verse in the topical memory system by the Navigators and Press is 2 Corinthians 5.17, the last verse in the reading. Therefore, I'm going to do it by memory here. I'm not going to look at the text. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. This is New American Standard Version, not necessarily the best, but that's what I learned. So here we go. He's a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now, I've learned since then, uh, reading the Greek and so forth, that the text really says, if any man is in Christ, new creation. New, yeah, new cre- there's new creation. It's not there, yeah. new creation. It's just the new creation yeah, is there. there there's, no, there's no verb there. There's no there is or you are or anything like that. It's just new creation has come in Christ. And that's uh, made clear through the book of Acts and other passages. And so this is the summation. That is a tremendous verse that brings together Isaiah 65 and a lot of things that are in the Gospels 
and the new covenant coming to fruition and the end of the old. I mean, there's so many theological themes that are in that verse, but it's in the middle of Paul arguing, I have an apostolic ministry. And that's the way the whole book is. I mean, think about how many verses in Second Corinthians are just precious jewels to know. Uh, we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus is Lord, four or five. I say this to the, you know, he who sows sparingly shall reap sparingly, nine, six. Uh, we do not lose heart. The outer man is decaying. Momentary light affliction is producing an eternal weight of glory, 416 and 17. We're ambassadors for Christ, 520. For One of my favorite verses in all the Bible, chapter 8, verse 9. And this is in the middle of him arguing, you should give money to the poor in Jerusalem. That's where it shows up. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, yeah. so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. I mean, this, that is the most gospel-saturated verse. Uh, I don't want to—I don't know. It, I, I think it could be said, that's the most gospel-saturated verse in all of Scripture, and it shows up in the middle of him arguing— Please give money to Jerusalem and to the poor in Jerusalem. It's amazing. And so you have this all the way through. There are so many memorable verses in 2 Corinthians, and this is one of the most polemical, you know, fight-to-the-death books in all the New Testament. And yet there are these jewels that just flow out. And I think the reason for that is because Paul was in union with Christ. He knew the Lord, and God, using all of his natural and, you know, personality traits and everything else, every time he would make a point, what would flow out is the gospel. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. People that listen to this podcast or any of the other ones, they'll tire of hearing this quote, but Frank Lake, the great Christian psychiatrist, says, you know, that in the intro to his clinical theology, which is his thousand-page attempt to integrate psychiatry and orthodox theology in the 60s, he says, you know, in the intro, like, the natural man doesn't understand that great anguish and great spiritual power can coexist and he says you know it, when we look at our humanity as something that have something good in it and then when when you know things hit the fan you open up and you look the cupboard is bare but he says you know if you think we're supposed to be a bucket or a container of something good that's the wrong metaphor we're supposed to be channels of the life and energy of god himself so when the bottom gets knocked out of humanity it ruins it as a container but it makes it an amazing channel for the life and energy of of the risen Christ. That's vine and branches talk, I think. Amen to that. Speaking of vine and branches, let's go on to the gospel. The gospel, Mark chapter yeah, it's, four. It's different because there's two parables here that are indicated, um, or maybe three. But I mean, everyone knows the mustard seed, smallest seed, verse thirty-one of chapter four, becomes the greatest of all shrubs, and so forth. But previous to that, it is person who sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed would sprout and grow. He does not know how the earth produces of itself first the stalk, then the head, then the full grain. Now, let me tell you what that means. The stalk 
is the secret kingdom in the days of Jesus. The head is the New Testament kingdom when only Gentiles are part of it. And then the full grain is the millennial kingdom when Jews and Gentiles are together for a thousand years. And Jesus reigns from Jerusalem. There we go. That's a chart. <laughs> That's a chart, baby. No, I think I've you know actually why heard, people, you heard know why, similar yeah. stuff to that. Do you know why people <laughs> like dispensationalism? You know, the whole left behind, there's a rapture, all the things. It makes for great charts. If you're yeah, a millennial or post-millennial, there's no charts. Like, it's not really good. They're simple charts. Ornate charts are what packs them in. Yes. Clarence Larkin, the greatest dispensational truth book, full of charts. Great. Anyway, I'm just joking. I, I think, though, the organic metaphors that Jesus uses, and especially, you know, the, the, the one with the mustard seed and so forth, those things all point to a growth metaphor. So whatever you think about the future, um, you can be a premillennialist and think that the future is going to come. And yeah, but really, this... then you're going to, and I quote from your own, I heard you give a talk on this, and you're like, look, really, you did this whole like charts, this PowerPoint, and you're like, really? Postmillennialism has Bach, handle everything. You can go with that, or you can go with Kirk Cameron. <laughs> and I think if you're pre-millennial, your biggest star right now is Kirk Cameron, which... Yeah, but you know Kirk Cameron actually became a post-millennialist. So. You don't even have Kirk Cameron anymore, <laughs> You don't even have that. Yeah, you still have the song, I Wish We'd All Been Ready, though. So that's... that's but, but whatever you do with your eschatological future, all the views and all that, the images of the kingdom are pretty much growth images. I mean, here, here we have, you know, stalk, head... Full grain, smallest seed, greatest fall shrubs. Those are images of growth. And I would defy someone to come up with a Bible description in biblical words that's, that show the kingdom does not include growth. I think that you have it just about in every yeah. one of the parables. So that makes me say, well, when the kingdom comes in, then there's going to be growth. And when did the kingdom come? And we're told this, especially in Luke, but in other passages, Jesus said, I'm not going to drink this until I drink it in the kingdom. And then, you know, a couple of days later, he's eating and drinking with the disciples. Peter says he ate and drank with us for 40 days in Acts chapter 10, I believe. So there is a, a kingdom came and there's growth. And the growth is shown all the way through the book of Acts. And if you read Acts 32, you can see how St. Boniface was part of that kingdom growth. You know, Acts 32. The, Acts 29. I know. No, <laughs> so I have two, I have two quick, for, we have to wrap up, but I have two. I rarely give like sermon illustrations, but I, I've preached on this text in some different contexts. And one was like when I was doing urban youth stuff in the Amy Zion church, and I preached a sermon on this text called The Kingdom of God is Like Crack Cocaine. It's like what happens when crack comes in? It starts with just the food, and then like it creates these That's people. The worst metaphor I've well, ever heard. Because then all of a sudden people become like it, it's this little subtle thing, and then everybody just becomes. It takes over the whole neighborhood, and everybody's love changes from this love to that love. And it's like this is what Christ is the kingdom is like. It's so rev it's it starts a little here, a little there. It's like it's like spiritual crack, and then it it it, it changes people's loves. The other one is G. Campbell Morgan. That's probably not a great. It worked in the context. People loved it, but like you know, as I tell it, and if 
podcast like this, it doesn't work as well. But uh, the other ones don't you, don't ever say that again. Yeah, I mean, it's it's very, but it is interesting. It's like the mustard seed thing. It's this thing that comes in and takes over. G. Campbell Morgan, I think he was an Italy British British evangelist, was in Italy, and he came to. So the story goes, he was came to this graveyard and he saw this tombstone, the big, big, big stone tombstone. In the middle of it, there was a tree growing up from it, and. He talks to the caretaker. It's obvious what happened. Like when they were putting the body in, a seed had fallen in. And if you were betting at that point when the seed fell in, who's going to win the headstone or the seed? You'd bet on the headstone, right? But that seed comes up and grows through the headstone. So like the organic life-giving spiritual reality. Christ always beats the dead. The li- the, the, I'm the God of the living, not the dead. And so the living God <clears throat> triumphs over hearts of stone, yeah, and I'm looking out at my little herb patch through my window here, and I got two examples from that. Mint. Just plant some mint and see how how it overcomes everything else. The other one is lemon verbena. Lemon verbena will overcome everything else. It, it Jesus should have used, instead of mustard seed, lemon verbena. It, it just overcomes every part of your garden. You have to cut it out, pull it out if you don't want it around. And so is mint. Wait for that Greg's next podcast, Things Jesus Should Have Said. But until <laughs> until then, uh, check out Eucharistics. I love it. And, you know, you can find... That's with a Eucharistics with an X. Exactly. Uh, with, with an X. And what a brilliant name you came up with. And, Greg, thanks for laboring in the vineyard. And uh, blessings to you and to all those preaching this week. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Synaxis Podcast. If you like what you heard, please... Go to iTunes, give it a rating, write a review, and subscribe, or pass it along to a friend via email, or say something about it on social media. All of those things help so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks to Greg Strawbridge for being my guest today, and thanks again to you all for listening. Until next time, fare thee well.